Hello and welcome to Two Bald Men and Friend, the show where we talk about issues and ideas using pop culture as the springboard. I'm your host, Joe, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello! And today we are joined by our friends, Dan. Hey And Thom. Hello! Today we're talking about Ant-Man and the Wasp and underdog stories and why we love them. So, spoiler alert for Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp. Sit back, relax, or, if you're driving, please remain upright and continue to drive vigilantly. So, guys, um, does anyone want to give a short synopsis of Ant-Man and the Wasp before we get started? Um, Paul <laughs> Rudd tries to silently finish up his house arrest when the plot barges in and ruins his life in the end. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Um... Obviously, it's a sequel, so it's established that Paul Rudd is Ant-Man, and this is post-Civil War, so he's in trouble for having helped uh, Captain America. So the big, his big plot is that he's trying to keep his house arrest in order because it's going to be up in a few days, and he doesn't want to hurt his family some more. The secondary plot is that Hope and Hank um, have discovered that there is a way to get out of the quantum realm, so... Their Where? mom and wife is potentially still alive. Sorry, yeah, I was just going to mention that uh, it was established in the first movie that she was lost in the quantum realm. Which they did, they had a quick little recap mm-hmm. of like um, them disabling the missile and they can't get through the armor plating on this big old missile that's going to blow up the city. So she goes subatomic to fit through the armor plating and disable the missile, which... I forgot about, so thank you for that recap. (laughs) And then the tertiary (laughs) plot is that there's this villain named Ghost that is trying to also get um, their mom out of the quantum realm, but to absorb her quantum powers and stop phasing... Yeah, so so Ghost uh, was basically exposed to the quantum realm energy, I guess, as a child, and so... Her form is constantly shifting between different um, states of matter. So she can, like, walk through walls and solid objects, but she also is, like, very unstable and is always in pain. And so using the technology they're using to get Janet out of the quantum realm, she could um, heal herself and become normal. Restabilize and not be in constant pain and fear of fading away but not actually dying and just your consciousness is forever trapped in a state of immortality with no body and surprisingly very dark character (laughs) so if you think like those three plots don't really fit together you're right it it didn't mesh well at all (laughs) that's true I don't understand why in all these character backgrounds or all these villain stories they get these powers through some huge explosion, and their parents die, and then they're fine. Children always survive the explosions. <laughs> well, because children... That's the important, <laughs> the important ingredient to superpowers is dead parents. <laughs> Without that, you can't cultivate a proper superhero. And I mean, you know, like, kids can, like, fall out of trees and be fine, but if I sleep weird, my elbow feels wrong <laughs> for the next week. Um... Before we move on, I do want to mention, Alex, you pointed out that this movie is post-Civil War, but it's pre-Infinity War. So it's kind of a prequel, um, or like happening simultaneously. Yeah, Yeah, I think they're happening on the same timeline. More of a parallel, adjacent. Yeah, so I just wanted to point that out, in case anyone's like, 
yeah, how come uh, Ant-Man wasn't, like, helping during Infinity War? He was doing this. Now here's this, your answer. Uh, so much less important so much than less Infinity important. War. <laughs> and part of me likes that the, the Ant-Man series, no pun intended, is a bit on a smaller scale. Compared to the, yeah, you like that one, huh? I did. (laughs) There was, now before we get into like the real nitty gritty stuff, there was a part where they explained that Janet sacrificed her life to save thousands of people. And I turned to, uh, I think, Thom, and I'm like, only a thousand? (laughs) (laughs) That missile was going into a city. Like, you would expect millions. It was a very small city. (laughs) They had a very efficient evacuation plan. (laughs) It was going to hit one apartment building. (laughs) Like, that would... (laughs) Okay, but now I'm ready to actually discuss the broad Ant-Man and the Wasp and compare it maybe to Ant-Man, see which one we liked more. So, um, with that prompt, I think I liked the first Ant-Man more. I think that's just because it was dealing with one plot, where this one was trying to juggle three and uh, drop the ball. Is that where that phrase comes from? <laughs> juggling you're juggling you're balls ball. and then you drop it? Or sports in general. Oh, <laughs> man. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, um, the first Ant-Man was funny, but... Overall, it was a heist film. This one seemed like it was trying to be more of a straight-up comedy, which I'm fine with. I think they did that well in Thor Ragnarok, but they didn't really balance the comedy with the serious parts very well, so it kind of seemed a little, I don't know the word for it, bad. (laughs) I wouldn't say this is a bad movie. I like the first movie more, but I also think it struggled to come into theaters as well where i think this movie was almost the same as the first one in the sense of they were both funny they focused more heavily on the comedy aspect instead of the serious parts of it but the first movie had directors drop and it struggled with all these other issues that the movie should have just failed entirely and it ended up being very good I think this second movie was about the same and it struggled with nothing. Yeah. I will point out that when we walked into the theater at 8.45 for a 9 o'clock showing, it was empty. Um, so I, I personally think... expected that. <laughs> I was very surprised. I just I think anything that has to do with Marvel, I am now always expecting like a large thing. Mm-hmm. But I recognize Ant-Man is almost like a spin-off. Like, not obviously in the same universe, but... Whenever Ant-Man comes up, it's always like a smaller scale off to the side type of thing. Um, Overall, I enjoyed Ant-Man and the Wasp for their characters and for their dialogue. But when it came to plot and when it came to uh, pacing, I was not impressed. And because of that, I prefer Ant-Man 1. Um, Even though it's an origin story and I'm exhausted from origin stories... Paul Rudd made it okay. <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to be contrarian to all of you, but not for the sake of controversy. I found the second film far, far superior than the first. Literally the smart dialogue and incredibly good contact, um, contextual jokes and like joke mm-hmm. setups. Uh, expert, they had fun in that writing room. But then you can tell, I was like, crap, how do we get to the next scene? Uh, here's a forced transition. The transitions <laughs> were so forced, but then when we were in there, oh, that entire 
entire sequence with the truth serum. I'm like, <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, pretty yeah. sure I think I like this movie a lot more than the first. I definitely agree that when Ant-Man and the Wasp was on point, like mm-hmm. it, it was there, it was awesome, and it was better than any individual parts of Ant-Man. But because of that consistency, like there were so many moments where there was just exposition for way too long to the point where like I'm looking around the theater to see what other people are thinking about. Like (laughs) when I am not immersed throughout, then I find more flaws in it. Yeah, I Mm. think that's a really good point that like the two of you were able to bring up. I think on the whole, Ant-Man 1 is better. But then, like, composite parts of Ant-Man and the Wasp, I think, were, like, really, really great. Um, Anytime Paul Rudd got giant, I thought was really cool. I was a big fan of that. Because then there's just more Paul Rudd. (laughs) Yeah, like you were mentioning before, where the first film was more of a uh, heist film, this was definitely more of a... It was a sort of a chase game attack. Mm. Oh, they got the lab. Oh, I tracked the lab. Oh, we got the lab now. Oh, they found the lab. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> it got a little tired toward the end, I'll admit. <laughs> but again, that dialogue was phenomenal with the truth serum. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I could watch an entire movie of just Luis yes. saying what happened. <laughs> yeah. You asked, if, you asked me where he was, emotionally. <laughs> if he... If, if the movie opened up and he was in an interrogation room and then someone said, okay, what happened? And it was just an that hour and a half of him explaining everything that happened, I would watch that movie. <laughs> I liked seeing the flashbacks, but hearing Luis's yes. voice. Yeah. <laughs> but everyone was taught, like their back was moving. I'm really into you, but I got like a dog. <laughs> Let's be best friends. Um, Dan, you brought up the idea of um, the forced transitions. We talked a little bit about this after the movie, but um, yeah, I would say that transitions were forced, where it was everything's going fine, and then out of nowhere, ghosts showed up, or out of nowhere, the gangsters showed up, and it wasn't really set up at all. It was just like, oh, they're here now, and Let's that's see. the problem. Mm-hmm. Or there needs to be some sort of technological hiccup for some sort of event to happen or to throw a wrench and things delay things for the bad guys to show up or something or other. So that's where I disagree. I didn't feel those were forced. I felt the technological hiccups were set up and then just executed in a way. And I understand the movie's about the use of this like high concept technology. And so if it messes up, okay, that makes sense for the movie. The movie has to have some sort of conflict. Um, but I could see where you're coming from saying, like, oh, Paul Rudd's suit doesn't work now, so, like, of course it doesn't. But right. I, I was more able to be like, okay, like, that makes sense in the context of this movie. I definitely recognize the fact that if the movie and the powers revolve around technology, technological hiccups make sense. My bigger complaint is that none of those technological issues happened in the first one. And so now that they're brand new hiccups in the second one, they felt more forced to me. That's fair. But hey, my flip phone never froze. My <laughs> iPhone freezes all the time. So. That's but fair. But it was fine in <laughs> Spider-Man 2 with Tobey Maguire because he lost his confidence. Yeah. He lost his powers. <laughs> I did like that. I was okay yeah. with that. Same. Glad we're on the same page. One example I'm thinking of is when they need to go to the classroom 
because the old Ant-Man suit is in the trophy that Cassidy took for show and tell. And then they could have just been in and out and it could have been a two second scene, but instead they made it a five to 10 minute scene where his um, suit malfunctions and he becomes toddler sized and needs to pretend he's a kid <laughs> running a- away from a hall monitor. Which was funny overall, but seemed I'm so actually, I'm so upset that he wasn't incognito in Cassie's classroom. Like yeah, <laughs> that's what I was yeah. expecting. That felt like such a missed opportunity. Oh, really? <laughs> they could have just done without that whole scene, and he still have the trophy in his room when he mm-hmm. went for it, and it just still be under the trophy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. They only made that scene for the joke, although it was pretty funny. <laughs> it was for the, uh, oh, here's the sequence of buttons that need to be pressed to fix the suit. <laughs> One, so when two, it, yeah. three, four. So fixed. when it happens <laughs> toward the end of the film, when he's gigantic, it's like, oh, wow, like doing this is a whole other process when he's gigantic. Yeah. I understood. Yeah. There were a couple of points where... At the in the first half of the film, you sort of see them setting it up so that later in the film it's gonna come up again. Um, I'm thinking specifically of the close-up magic at the very in the opening scene. There's actually a lot of good setup and payoff. Mm-hmm. You continue the close-up magic, but the Altoid scene as That's well. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, with with the close-up magic, he he ended up using it like twice in the opening scene, and I was like. All right, so he's going to use some form of close-up magic in the act 3 to save the day. And I was almost right. He used magic concepts of misdirection and he like literally says the line like first rule of um, magic the, university. Yeah, it's the first lesson they teach you at online close-up magic university. <laughs> misdirection. And so I patted myself on the back even though it wasn't exactly what I expected. I was like, I got it. <laughs> Let's see. Then when everyone's tied to a chair, post-villain exposition, um, in the previous scene, Paul Rudd's just like, oh, hey, can I just grab an Altoy or whatever? And then uh, Mr. Pym or whatever is like, no, stop. He's like, oh, haha, he's not getting the childish thing that he wants. Then they flip that concept on his head. It's like when he's faking a heart attack or a condition, it's like, oh, shoot, does, is there something actually wrong with him? But then they use that as a ploy to escape. I'm like, oh. That's a really great use of um, setup and misleading the audience, and mm-hmm. just I like close-up magic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one thing that this movie did have going for it that the first one sort of tried and missed was that parenthood aspect and Paul Rudd trying to balance like wanting to do something with his life versus trying to be in Cassidy's life, and. The opening scene, again, was him being probably the best parent in the world. Um, (laughs) He created an entire heist adventure for his daughter. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then him trying to decide, like, what's more important to me? Like, being there for my family or, like, saving the world? Or not even saving the world, saving Janet. Which, Mm -hmm. which much lower stakes in my mind, but I guess because it's not my mom. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, for some reason I thought this was a film in the movie, or a line in the movie, but it was actually in the trailer for Spider-Man with Mike, or with Miles Morales, where it's like, you don't need to like save the world, you just need to save one person. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That trailer. That was a great trailer. For Ant-Man and the Wasp, the, the, trailer, the trailers that came up before Ant-Man and the Wasp were all obviously superhero themed, and the Miles Morales one came up, and I'm so excited. That's, what yeah. an incredible format. Mm-hmm. And it just sounds 
And Nick from New Girl is voicing the Sp- other Peter Spider-Man. Parker. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I was wondering who that was. Um, but going back to the parenthood and superheroing. Um, yeah, that uh, going back to the scene where everyone's captured, there's a, there's a part where Ant-Man's phone starts going off and he's like, no, it's my daughter. She needs me. Uh, and they start FaceTiming, and she's just like, I can't find my cleats. And his ex-wife is like, do you know where her cleats are? Can you just walk the phone around the house, and maybe I'll spot it? And it was just a very funny and very real moment of like, yeah, I guess that would happen if you were a parent who's also a superhero. <laughs> I think I disliked it because Lawrence Fishburne kept on going on, expos- like doing evil villain expositions. Like, of course the phone's going to continue the ring, man. Yeah. <laughs> Can we like... <laughs> Have you never seen a phone before, yeah. Morpheus? <laughs> in The Incredibles 2, Elastigirl is on her motorcycle trying to capture someone, and... Mom! Yeah. Where's my such and such? <laughs> and she also gets a phone call, and it's all of this, like, Well, have you checked here? I'm a little busy right now. Yeah, but Dad said not to call. Is that your mom? I told you not to call her! <laughs> <laughs> oh, never mind. It was where you said it was, Mom. Yeah. <laughs> And it's I like, d- of course it was. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Your mom knows where everything is. I do like those snippets of balancing family and uh But yes, super I, 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 I personally could have gone for a touch more of that, but like you mm-hmm. said, there's like three different things, whole divergent plots going on in this film that don't click together at all. Yeah, as cool as Ghost looked and as cool as her powers were... I think I would have been happier if they ditched that whole plot line and it was just Ant-Man and the Wasp doing the quantum realm saving Janet. But then also there were the gangsters that were trying to take their technology. I think that would have been a lot easier to balance. I didn't find the gangsters as compelling, but their reasons for being an antagonist were far more (laughs) reasonable. Yeah, I I just love Walton Goggins. Yeah. (laughs) And I think it would have made more sense for this smaller scale that we've been saying Ant-Man and the Wasp can play to. Mm-hmm. Um, Ghost made it much more real because she is a supervillain. Loved her after-imaging and yes. yeah. props Her, her, her effects were dope. <laughs> I would say when it comes down to like fight scenes, I wasn't super impressed with mm-hmm. um, how they kept using their technology because... It just felt like they could have been doing a better job with how they shrink and grow and shrink and grow. Mm-hmm. It seemed a little forced where they shrink and grow for the cinematography rather than for how useful it would be to fight these bad guys. Yeah. That's one thing I liked more about the first movie is they really, during the fights, they would play to the size of everything else they were around. Like mm-hmm. when Paul Rudd was mm-hmm. fighting the villain in a briefcase... And there were cigarette boxes and Pez dispensers and all these things bouncing around him. Mm-hmm. But they didn't, exactly what you said, they didn't shrink and grow during the fights to justify their size. Yeah. Or the they camera. They used everything else around them. <laughs> In yeah. the first one, the camera would just pan out to make it look how, like, how trivial the fight was. Yeah. And <laughs> when, the, when the train <laughs> hits yeah. and they zoom out, it's like... Yeah, that's a good point. Um, uh, in the first one, they shrunk, uh, and Paul Rudd did, I think what you were talking about, Alex, like he would, as he was fighting, shrink and then get big and then shrink again and then get big. Or then when he's fighting Yellow Jacket, they would both fight small or like fight big, 
This one focused a lot more on changing the size of things around them. So Wasp like shrinks a guy's bike and he falls off of it. Or like she throws a Pez dispenser and then makes it big. Yeah. That's also... actually what I wanted to see more of oh, in yeah? the second movie. Was instead of them shrinking at all, then play to the same aspect, but they keep themselves the same size and everything else in their environment shrinks and grows to their need. Yeah. Like the Pez dispenser, like the bike, but they do more of that. I think what it is for me, coming off the heels of Deadpool 2 and The Incredibles 2, where the choreography was, like, jaw-dropping, this was just a little lackluster in comparison. <laughs> yeah. I, I do think that Paul Rudd, um, he grew more often than he needed to. I mean, maybe just because it was a new thing. Like, from Ant-Man, he only shrunk. And then because of Civil War and the big reveal that he can grow... Then in Ant-Man 2, he was growing a lot more often, which I did like when he used the the truck as like a scooter yeah. yes. to, to go around. But I think because they had to, I guess, cut it in half between shrinking and growing, then they missed out on a lot of opportunities. So Ant-Man 1 was kind of an underdog movie because everyone heard Ant-Man and was like, oh, what a stupid power. And then, Thom, you brought up earlier all the problems production had, so it was the idea that this movie should not do well, and then it ended up doing pretty good. And Ant-Man and the Wasp is, I think, pretty similar. It's the first Marvel movie after Infinity War, so it's kind of an underdog in that sense. But I think that's something we can all get behind, so why is it that we all love underdog stories as a society, do you think? Because people see themselves as having to struggle, and they love seeing the little guy win. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of people are drawn to from your bootstrap stories of they started from the bottom and they worked their way up, because a lot of people think that they are at the bottom. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so they want. Yeah, especially the whole like do it yourself is like ah, his scrappy little junk robot is gonna take on Titanium Joe, and oh, we did it. <laughs> Just having your own like personal work and hard perseverance triumph over over the establishment, man. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think in general, people think the world is out to get me. And so they want to see movies where they can put themselves into the protagonist's shoes. And that pessimistic view that they have helps them enjoy the movie more. Um... Yeah, Thom, I think it. I think you're on the right track with um, saying people see themselves. Um, it's hard to put yourself onto Superman, but it's a little bit easier to put yourself onto Ant-Man because it's like, oh, I've also made mistakes, or like I also am like balancing my home life with like what I want to do, and it's a little bit simpler for you to project onto that character, you specifically. No, <laughs> oh, oh, I know you. <laughs> If only I could be Superman. <laughs> Superman, I do like seeing, like, the the history of, um, like, superheroes and, like, seeing how, like, Superman started off as incredible and indestructible, and that's pretty much how he stayed. Yeah. Like, sometimes he got weaker and then would come back on top, I guess, but it was a lot of, these people are super powerful, let's watch them win a lot. And then... As time went on, they started creating more, I would say, dynamic superheroes of they start off weak or at least flawed and they have like that tragic hero-ness to them, like the Byronic hero and like Wolverine and stuff and Batman. 
and seeing them struggle and inevitably succeed, but that struggle is a lot more, I don't know if cringeworthy is the right word, but like something compelling. Yeah. Something worth watching because even though you know what the outcome is, you can sort of think like, oh, how's it, how is he going to get out of this one? Yeah. It's strange to me as well because part of me is like, oh, is that just us evolving as storytellers as a society as we go on? But you can like literally point back to like a lot of the ancient Greek myths. It's like, oh no, all their heroes are like tragically flawed in like some way. And that stuff is ancient history. <laughs> they came up with those wacky stories. <laughs> but then you also look at like Hercules. Is Hercules an like... underdog? Oh, I murdered my <laughs> no. wife in my hand. relatable. Well, I'd say, you know, Hercules, the myth starts, he's a baby and he strangles two snakes. So the, I guess I, I totally agree with your point, but then there is still this remnants of like, yeah, you know, like there's this guy who always wins and then in the end he wins. Mm-hmm. So like, Absolutely. hooray. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess I can get behind him. Like, I guess for me, like the character, the has to be like, not flawed for me to start rooting for them, but at least charming. Mm-hmm. And I think, some people, including myself, find charm in flaws. Like, I'm thinking very specifically to Iron Man, where, like, that that's it. He, he's flawed, and, and <laughs> yeah, it, it, it comes off as charming. Or, or even just, though he doesn't have that strength to overcome his obstacle, there's some sort of quality in him, whether that's, like, a heart of gold in Captain America, where you can tell that he's a good-hearted person. Um, or I guess in Tony Stark's case, is, uh, he learns a valuable lesson, something in that regard. <laughs> Going back to Hercules in the Disney version, they make him like a nerdy teenager that everybody likes to pick on in order for you to say like, oh, I've been there, Hercules. Don't worry, you'll be okay. Yeah, or and then at the end, he becomes a literal god. <laughs> yeah. Or it's his, um his strength or his talent is seen as something negative where he's yeah. like, oh, I got the thousands bales of ha- um, uh, hell. Bales of hell. I don't know what was tripping me up. Bale like, oh. rhymes with hail and so. Yeah. Hails and then he's like, whoops, my, my super strength, I accidentally knocked down the entire uh, Greek temple. Yeah. It's yeah. like, oh, he'll just never fit in, Hercules. I thought that was very smart of Disney. Yeah, it, yeah they, they create a story of Hercules who always wins and inevitably wins and they make it to a story of Hercules who always loses because of his strength to finally learn how to use his talent to be good. And that's all we want to see. We want to see all of us who we picture, we have a flaw and then someone teaches us how to use that flaw to overcome all of the obstacles that we've been creating because of that flaw. Yeah. Thanks, Disney. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I want to bring up this study that was done with two hypothetical basketball teams. They asked a group of people which team they would want to root for. And one team was described as the underdog. So they had less money, less talented players, and things like that. And 88% of the group rooted for that team, the underdog. But then when the scenario was flipped and the quote-unquote better team lost the first three games of the series and that would 
if they lost the next game, it would kick them out of the playoffs. Half those people flipped and started rooting for that team. <laughs> so I think it is just some idea of um, maybe like justice of like, oh, like this team's, you're not doing too bad. Like we've all been down, but that doesn't mean you're out. Thanos just wants a good underdog story. He just wants <laughs> to make it balanced. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know if that's just that innate human sense of there wanted to be some justice or equilibrium or some sort of like evening equalizer in this chaos or whatnot. If we get like a certain satisfaction or gratification out of that for sure. Yeah, there's this idea of Schadenfreude which means you get joy out of someone else's misery. So I think it's not only you want the little guy to win, you want the big dog to lose. <laughs> yeah, that immediately makes me think of uh, Mets versus Yankees. Mm -hmm. Or is it Yankees versus Mets? I guess either works. I don't, no, there's well, definitely a right mean, way. <laughs> um, Depends on which stadium they're playing. Yeah, <laughs> got it. Um, so many people root for the Yankees under the... Like, idea of, well, I am a winner and I want to win, so I'm going to root for the team that wins. And then, literally almost the opposite perspective of anyone who roots for the Mets is, I guess it's not complete, I'm a loser, I want to lose. <laughs> no, it's not that. But it's basically, well, because the Yankees are expected to win, I'm going to feel much more satisfied mm -hmm. and excited if the Mets win. And yeah. therefore, I'm going to root for the Mets. And we have more fun because we don't even care if we lose because we expect to lose. But we'll celebrate so much harder if the Mets win. Mm -hmm. Or even that whole, in a lot of sports scenes, is like, oh, it's the curse of whatever. The Sox haven't won a series since 90 or whatever. And woo, here they are. We're finally winning the World Series in yeah. 2004. I don't even yeah, know. Yeah, where Jimmy Fallon doesn't <laughs> attend during yeah, uh, the fever pitch. That's when they win. <laughs> yeah. One of my professors in college had family in Chicago, and I had him during the time where the Cubs finally won the World Series. And he was talking to his family and was like, oh, aren't you guys happy the Cubs finally won? And they were like, no, the Cubs are just another team now. <laughs> There's no lovable underdog quality to them anymore. They're, they're just, you know, another baseball team that was bad and now isn't bad anymore. Like, <laughs> no, yeah, uh, it dismisses the entire idea of the curse because, was there a curse? Is that one? I don't even know. Oh, uh, Okay. Well, it's it's no longer... If there was a curse, it's not a curse. They were just bad for a bunch of years. The stadium was built over an Indian barrel. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the entire U.S. of A. Is <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Are we paying... What does that mean for... I guess I'm paying for the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was <laughs> Stanley cameo. <laughs> that, was, that was one of my more uh, preferred cameos in this movie. For sure. That was... I was confused. I literally turned and I was like, what does that mean? Because <laughs> drugs. Because <laughs> he did drugs. Oh, uh, thanks. <laughs> um, You'll get it if you, when you see the movie. <laughs> um, one quote that I always think about when we talk about optimists and pessimists, which I think fits with this idea of underdogs, is um, I'd rather be pleasantly surprised than fatally disappointed. And again, I'm going to just start off with the Yankees and Mets as a good metaphor of when you root for the Mets, you're pleasantly surprised anytime they win. 
And when you root for the Yankees, you're fatally disappointed anytime they lose. And so this is a quote that pessimists often use to sort of justify their pessimism. And I kind of disagree with the quote. Like, I don't think it's a good idea to expect the worst in situations because psychologically, we actually end up creating the worst of every situation and we overthink things. And then we become like masters of our own destiny, but in a very negative sense. Yeah, it's this idea of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you let something ruin your morning and you're like, oh, this day's going to be terrible, I can already tell. You're probably right, because now everything that happens, you're just going to say, oh, this is terrible. I know this is the worst day of my life. And it's like, well, you're kind of making it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In the sense of, oh, I'm rooting for the underdog and they lost. That was the expected outcome. And I'm not as disappointed and that just adds further fuel to the fire. Maybe next time, instead of actually <laughs> making it happen that time. <laughs> so then if you root for the underdog, maybe you just can't be disappointed. Because if they lose, you break even. Yeah, or, that's, that's the idea yeah. of the quote. And I'm, mm -hmm. say, I'm saying I disagree with it. I don't think... I mean, maybe specifically with the rooting for the Mets, it might work out. But if you use that philosophy in life, I wouldn't say that it's the best and when we use like the morning example of, oh, I woke up and stubbed my toe, I can already tell it's going to be a bad day, and you hit traffic, you're like, see, it's because I stubbed my toe. When like you were going to hit traffic either way, and, and then, you're just <laughs> cascading this negative mentality. Wait, that's going to hear that's the problem. <laughs> you always leave your house at 8.50. <laughs> that's why there's so much traffic. <laughs> Work starts at 8.30. <laughs> oh this is your fault. Um, whenever I think of that quote, I also think of another quote from this book, The Art of Racing in the Rain. And the big recurring mantra that occurs throughout the book is that which you manifest is before you. And they use a metaphor where when you're driving in the rain and you start skidding a little bit, if you stare at the wall that you're heading towards, you're guaranteed to hit it. Whereas if you look at where you want to be and you maneuver your car in such a way, you'll get to where you want to be rather than where you are headed. And this idea of you are in charge of yourself, which I think can be a crippling experience or a crippling idea of all of my consequences are my own. But it can also be an uplifting um, mentality of I can create my own happiness. And I think that's why we root for the underdogs and specifically Ant-Man, because um, I guess you could say, like, looking at the big dogs, it's just, oh, they're succeeding because of luck or fate. But at a hero like Ant-Man, who's taking responsibility for his past actions and trying to make right, you see, oh, he's taking responsibility, he's taking action, and he's really just trying his best. And I think there's just a little bit more... Um, something admirable about that attitude. That'll do it for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. Please tune in next week when we talk about Fahrenheit 451 and censorship. If you liked us, find us on Twitter and Instagram at 2 underscore bald men and find us on Facebook. And don't forget to rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Thank you all so much again. And if you were driving, we hope you got to your destination safely and on time.